Well, if you're new here, if you're a visitor, you're picking up on the last week in a series on the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a glorious little short story. It's only four chapters long, but it's amazing how this glorious short story covers so much in just four short chapters. It starts off with pain, tragedy, difficulty, the suffering of life, and and that's a reality of the world we live in. There is pain, difficulty, and suffering. Every one of us are going to taste it. No one escapes pain and suffering in this world. The portion, the amount, the frequency, how that comes looks different for all of us, but we all endure it. And we see that in the book of Ruth. Yet we see there is hope. There's hope as Ruth retur- as Naomi returns to the people of God. We see a great hope in this story. We also see God's care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the alien, that God cares for those who are outside the family to bring them into the family. God cares for those who are in the family, who are in need, and the way He meets the need of His people is through His people. That we're called to meet the needs of one another as we see those and as we have opportunity, we care and love one another. We also see a beautiful picture of marriage, courtship, love in this book. And we see that marriage doesn't have age or economic or racial boundaries. No, there's only one boundary that God puts on His people for marriage, and that is that you worship the one true God. You marry inside the family of God. And we see that in this glorious book. And and, and most powerfully, this book is truly a picture. It's almost like a mini-Bible. We get a bit of a mini-Bible in this one four-chapter book because it points us forward to the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and we see a shadow of that in this man named Boaz, who is the Redeemer in this story. It starts off just like our Bible. A man and a woman placed in the land that God has put them. And when a temptation comes, the question is, will that man and that woman, will they trust the Word of God or will they give in to the temptation? And once the temptation is given into, things appear good for a moment, but it brings death. Sin always leads to death. And just as Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and they were tempted and they fell to that temptation and it brought death, So Elimelech and his wife Naomi were in the land of God and they faced a temptation. And when they gave in, they left and ran and it brought death as we see this man named Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, die. And we see Naomi, his widow, left only with two Moabite daughters-in-law. One of them leaves, one of them uh, leaves and one of them clings. Ruth is the one who clings, and we see Ruth go to work in the fields of Boaz, the Redeemer. He feeds her a meal. She approaches the Redeemer at the foot. Picture of the feet of the cross where we approach Jesus. She approaches Boaz at his feet, lowly, humble. And Boaz promises, I will redeem you, but I've got a problem. There is one who has claim on you over me, and I've got to go deal with him. And that's where we are this week. Boaz has got to go deal with someone who has a claim 
on Ruth, just like you and I. Someone had a claim on you. And someone's the enemy. It's sin. And the enemy, the devil, he had a claim on you and somebody had to come and pay the redemption price. And we're about to see Boaz go and pay the redemption price to the one who has claim. And in this, notice, we're going to read all of chapter 4, so it's a little bit longer section. We're finishing up the book today. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. But notice in this section where Ruth is. During Boaz's redemption of Ruth, she is not present. She won't be anywhere around during the redemption. Because you know what? Ruth has zero to do with her redemption. She adds nothing to it. It's Boaz go and does it all, just like our redemption. What do you have to add to your redemption? Nothing. Jesus does it all. He pays the full price. So if you would please, let's stand and read the Word of God. We're in Ruth chapter 4, and we'll read the entirety of this chapter here, the Word of our Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from our country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you. So And say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot Redeem it for myself, lest I impair the inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. For this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging a uh, confirmation of a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead, in his inheritance, the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord um, make this woman who is coming to, into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Arathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. 
And may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar, born of Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord had given you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and gave, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has, given, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the, woman, and the women of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadad, Abinadad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. This is the word of God for the people of God and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, in this chapter, we see Boaz waste no time getting to work. He said, I'm going to redeem you, and he goes to the city gates to redeem her. Now, in ancient times, the city gates were like the courthouse. If you had a, a, manner, a, a matter to settle, if there were differences, if you were going to get married, if anything legal was going to take place, you went to the elders of the city at the city gate. That's where they gathered. They would protect the city as people passed in and out of the city. They watched what was happening. That's how the elders operated. So Boaz goes to the city gate where these ten elders would be. They have the number ten is a, is in a Jewish culture. It reminds them of the Ten Commandments. And also uh, these ten elders we see in the New Testament as Paul would travel from city to city throughout ancient Asia Minor, any city he went to, that had ten Jewish men would have a synagogue. That's how they established if a city had a synagogue. If you had ten Jewish men, you could establish a synagogue. Now you may remember, and we'll start this next week. Next week we'll start the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, we see Paul show up in the city of Philippi, but there's not ten Jewish men. So that church starts with a woman named Lydia that he meets down by the riverside. So here, Boaz goes to take care of this matter. He wastes little time. Now in this passage, and in this book we hear the word redeem over and over and over again. It should sound like a broken record. It should be ingrained heavily in our mind to be redeemed. It's a word we use a lot. If you've been in a Christian community in the church, you've heard it. But oftentimes words that we hear over and over again, sometimes they lose their full weight and meaning. This means to exchange. It's the idea of to exchange something in particular at a marketplace. Well, the exchange that we get in redemption is we get a free gift. Listen, your salvation cost you nothing. Zero. You had to pay nothing for your salvation but it costs somebody something. You see, redemption is a gift. It's a gift that's given to you, and when somebody gives you a gift, you've only got two options. 
receive the gift or reject the gift. But you don't pay for the gift. You don't buy the gift. When somebody gives you a gift, you don't go, hey, let me pay you for that gift. No, it's been paid for in full, and Jesus has paid for our redemption in full, and that's what Boaz is about to do here. And we see that Ruth, Ruth is a picture of us. So as we read this story, you should look and say, I'm a lot like Ruth here. She legally had no claim to the people of God. She came when she heard the message of God's people following someone who is a witness to God named Naomi. Boaz, the Redeemer, came and he loved her. She found out that he is the true Redeemer. And she came to him in the middle of the night at his feet. And he gives her a down payment saying, I will be back. How many of you does that sound like your story? How many of your story, it's been the middle of the night, you've been processing this, you've been praying through it, and you come to the Lord laying there in bed in the middle of the night, you come to the foot of the cross. And Christian, how often do we do that as we have those long nights, long nights of the soul that we wake up and we wrestle and we go, oh, I have to come to the cross. I come to Jesus because He's the only place that I can find hope. So Boaz comes here to take care of this matter. And why does he do it quickly? Because Boaz loves Ruth. He loves her. Now when we talk about the word love, it's a word that can mean a lot of different things in our culture. I can say I love a particular food. I can say I love my wife. I can say I love my children. I can say I love doing an activity. Love gets used a lot of ways. In the culture where I'm from, and I think in a lot of cultures, the word love is primarily associated with a feeling, an emotion. How does that person or that thing make me feel? And if it makes me feel a certain way, I love it. I love my wife because she makes me feel a certain way. That's the worldly definition of love. That's not the biblical definition of love. Oh, church, don't be deceived into buying into a worldly definition of love. Because if you do, love will always disappoint you. Because love, while it has feeling involved, it's not merely a feeling. It's much more. Feelings will come and go. You'll have ups and downs. I don't think any person gets married outside of having the feeling of love. But I think anybody, everybody who's been married any length of time realizes that feeling's not there 100% of the time. That feeling goes away at times, and it returns. But that feeling doesn't mean that you don't love a person, whether it's there or not. No love is much deeper. You see, if you want to know how love is defined, you've got to look at Scripture. The very first time the word love is used, you want to understand words in Scripture, you often look, how was it used first in the Bible? Well, the first time the word love was used was in Genesis 22. And God says to this man named Abraham, He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go up that mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Biblical love is understood in this. A father sacrificing his son. That's how love is defined scripturally. Scripture defines love as being willing to lay down your life for another person. To take that which you love and to die. That's love. Husbands, you're called to love your wife. And the Bible says, here's how you love your wife. You die for her. 
like Christ died for the church. He laid down his life. That's how we love our wives. That's how we love our spouse. We lay down our lives for him. Yet the world wants to put a different definition of love. I've been in ministry long enough to know that many marriages are hurting. Doesn't matter where I go, doesn't matter who I talk to, in any group, marriages struggle and marriages hurt. And I think a big part of it is because we misunderstand what marriage's purpose is. Marriage's purpose is not so that you have feelings of love all the time and you feel a certain way. No, marriage's purpose is so that you're with another person and you die for that person. And the next day you may not feel like dying, but you wake up and you do it again. And you die for a person. You sacrifice, you lay down your rights like Christ laid them down for us. That's love. And I think as we walk in light of that, God blesses and grows and strengthens our marriage. But when your marriage, when you're looking at your marriage to be all about yourself, when you're thinking, hey, how does it make me feel? What do I receive for it? That's a transactional marriage that's based on worldly folly. Now, our marriage is to be based on godly wisdom. You see, Jesus died for his bride, the church, and that's how we're to live. We're to die for one another. He made the payment. Jesus' back was laid bare because we turned our back on Jesus Christ. Jesus' head had a crown of thorns put on it because we were thinking evil thoughts. Jesus' side and heart was pierced because our heart was wicked. Jesus' hands were wounded because our hands did evil deeds. And Jesus' feet had a nail put through them because we walked in evil. Jesus laid down His life for us, and we lay down our life for those we love. And now what we're going to see here, we're going to see the other Redeemer, the one who has the first claim, show up. And when this guy shows up, it never mentions his name. I think that's significant. This guy had a name. Boaz would have known his name, but he's nameless. Why? Because this man will not fulfill the duty that he's called to. Look at this. He waits. He says, sit down. Boaz has the elders sit down. He has the man sit down. And in verse 2, he takes the elders. And he says, Naomi's come back, and she's got land. Will you redeem her? If you buy the land, if you buy Naomi, you get her land. And here's what I think this Redeemer thought. You know, Naomi's pretty old. The year of Jubilee, when the land will go back to Naomi, well, that's some years away. So if I buy this land, Naomi, who has no sons, she has no descendants, all I've got to do is buy the land and take care of Naomi, feed this older woman, make sure she's okay, and when she dies, my family gets more land. It's going to help my inheritance. This is a great deal. So this guy goes, absolutely, I'll redeem. It's fabulous. But then Boaz, in his wisdom, gives him the rest of the story. Tells him what else is going to happen. The moment you buy the field that belonged to Elimelech, you get Ruth the Moabite. Oh, and there's this thing called a Leverite marriage, which they took pretty seriously. And a Leverite marriage was that if a man died without having descendants, the closest relative would marry that man, and the descendants from that union the first descendant will be credited back to the deceased and he would get the inheritance. 
So when this guy hears that, oh, I'm about to take Ruth. She's going to have to become part of my family. I'm going to have to give her a child. This guy probably already had a family, already had a child. He's thinking it's going to mess with his inheritance. And hey, I'm not going to get the land ultimately because it's going to go back to Elimelech's family with this child. He goes, this is a terrible deal. And he says, listen, he doesn't say, I will not. He says, I cannot redeem. I can't do it. I don't have the ability to pay the price. It'll mess up my inheritance. It's too expensive. Twice, twice here in verse 5, this guy says, I can't redeem. He can't do it. You see, to be a redeemer, you've got to have three things. One, you've got to have the right bloodline. This guy has it. Secondly, you've got to be willing to redeem. And third, you've got to have the ability to pay the price, the redemption price. And you see, that's our problem. Every one of us would love to redeem ourselves. People have been trying to redeem themselves throughout the ages. We try all sorts of ways to redeem ourselves. People will say, hey, if I do enough good works, if I do enough good things, that'll be sufficient for the sin I've committed. Or, hey, if, um, if I do enough religious practices, I'll tell you, I love being in Ethiopia and I'm learning and observing. And one of the things, Ethiopia is a very religious country. When I say religious, people do all sorts of religious practices. But let me tell you, religious practices will always come up empty. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they have no ability to save you. They can't. It's insufficient. Some think maybe their family. Many of you were born into a Christian home. Praise God, what a gift. But you don't come to Christ, you don't come to God saying, my family trusts you. No, you have to trust Jesus. You have to come to Jesus. That's the price. He is the one who can pay the price. You can't. You, all the ways you try to redeem yourself are empty. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So here we see that this guy cannot do it. He's unwilling and look at this, it says in verse 7, Now it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging a confirmation of transaction to take off one sandal and give it to another. Now some of the practices in Scripture seem a little odd to us in our culture. This is one of those, but I want you to see a few things. I want to show you in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 7 through 10, how seriously God took the Leverite vow that you, that a man would take care of a woman in need. Okay? God takes that seriously, man. God calls us to that, and that's a serious call. And this verse is a few things. One, I sort of find it a little humorous, but I also see the heart of God in it. That God's heart here, he, and what he cares for. Uh, listen to verse 7. It may be on the screen. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25. And if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then the brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. 
And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of the man's house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now one, I'll tell you, I find that a little funny because to me, in my culture, to be called the house of him who had his sandal pulled off doesn't sound that bad. But in this culture, that was a grave insult. This is a biblical command that if a man will not fulfill his vow to take care of a widow in need, that that widow is to take his shoe and spit in his face. Now that's pretty harsh. That's how serious God takes taking care of those who are in need. Of God telling men to take care of women, to look out for them. And listen to this, God has created men and women equal. There's equality in worth value between men and women. But we cannot deny, and Scripture won't allow us to deny, that there's uniqueness. See, I, we can start at the very basics. I have no ability to carry a baby in, inside of me. I, I can't do it. My wife can, but she can't carry the baby without me. God's made us where we need each other. And God's made it where, in general, in most situations, men are stronger than women. I'm not a particular large or strong man, but I'm much stronger than my wife. And God calls us to be gentle and humble and patient and to die for our wives. That's what we're called to do. We're called to die. I often look at my children, especially when they were little, and I would ask them, I'd say, Hey, boys, after Jesus, who's number one in this house? And they all learned, it's mom. Hey, boys, listen, your mom is more important to me than any of you. And you start getting sideways with mom, and you're getting sideways with me. One thing I'm going to do, if my boys are getting on my, um, to their mother, I'm going to step in and say, you need to stop that. We've got a problem. You don't treat her that way. Men, we're to love our wives. There's total equality. Don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. There's total equality between men and women, but there's a uniqueness. God has created us unique, and it's glorious. And when culture and society stop denying the uniqueness of men and women, they're missing out on the glory of God and what he's called us to. It's a beautiful thing. Don't rail against it, but don't misunderstand it. Oftentimes, cultures misunderstand it, and you see men abuse women. Men take advantage of women. That's a godless, evil thing. We're called to die, to die. My wife should never fear me. My wife should never have a hard time following my lead because she knows I love her so much that I'm always looking out for her best. That's what we're called to. And when that starts to break down, when sin starts to get in there, repentance is needed. And here... God takes it seriously. If a man here, this man who won't redeem, he's not going to redeem because of Ruth. This guy's going, whoa, I don't want to be called him who had his sandal pulled off. So I'm going to take my sandal and give it to you, Boaz. You go take care of this because I don't want that reputation. I've got to make sure that this woman's taken care of because if not, everybody's going to be looking at me and my name's going to be mud. My name's going to be terrible. I don't want that. So this guy wants Boaz to redeem now. He's going, Boaz, please do this. I'll give you my sandal. Whatever we've got to do, let's do this deal. And Boaz is willing to do that. He's willing to pay and acquire Ruth. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, and that by His poverty you became rich. Boaz is paying everything. All his wealth, all of it is being put on the line. He's taking it and paying it all to get Ruth. He'll take Naomi, he'll take the land, he'll take it all. He's going to pay whatever it costs to get Ruth. He'll pay the full price. That's what Christ, he came and paid the price for us. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus gets the riches of God, but because we're children of God, we get the same inheritance. The inheritance of Christ is your inheritance, Christian. And that's a beautiful, glorious thing. In verse 11, he says he's going to take her and marry her. And then in verse 11, all the people at the gate. So this is a public thing. I love this. Boaz goes public. He doesn't hide that, hey, I'm taking Ruth to be my own. You know, as a, as a Christian, when we come to Christ, we go public. You don't hide that you're a Christian. Being a Christian has a personal dynamic to it. You have a personal relationship with Christ, but you also need other believers. No Christian can live the way that Christ has called them to in isolation. You need the body of Christ. But our faith is meant to be public. That's part of baptism. Baptism is a person coming forward and saying, hey, church, body of Christ. And when I say church, I'm not referring to a building. Somebody asked me that this week. No, I'm referring to people. The Bible never refers to a church as a building. The church is people. So when I say church, if you're a saint, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, I'm referring to you, not this building. But baptism is a person saying, I'm one of you. I'm a part of the body of Christ. And the church looks at them and says to them, hey, welcome to the family. We're going to look out for you. We're going to help you. We're going to be a part of it. That's why baptism is a beautiful thing. That's why I think baptism's uh, most appropriate in a church. It can happen anywhere, but you want it to happen in the presence of a body of believers that will be loving and looking out for that person. And Boaz here, he goes public to the whole city of Bethlehem. Hey, Bethlehem, everybody in the city, you all know who I am. You all think this gal, Ruth, you've seen her integrity and her character, but she's a Moabite. She's coming into my family. And look at what all the women start to say. Remember when Naomi showed up? All the women were gossiping. Is this the same Naomi? Hey, this can't be the same Naomi. She left wealthy and rich and she's come back poor. Now all the women say, we are witnesses. Verse 11. May the Lord make the women, the woman who is coming into your house like Leah and Rachel. Leah and Rachel is the highest compliment in Israel. Of all the women... In the patriarchal era, Leah and Rachel, all of their children, trusted the Lord. They all followed the one true God. And he said, may your children be blessed like that. May you be blessed with these children. And then he goes on to say, may you've acted worthily. Remember, you've seen that word worthy. Boaz is worthy. Ruth's worthy. Everybody recognized their worthiness. They trust God. And he says, May your house be like the house of Perez, who tamed our board of Judah, because the offspring that the Lord has given you by this woman. Now, we read over that Perez and Tamar, and you may not stop to consider that story. But if there's ever a story that makes me pause and look to make sure my Bible still says holy on it, it's Perez and Tamar. That is one twisted story. So in the story of Judah, 
I mean, in Joseph. Joseph has a brother that is the primary instigator to sell him into slavery. That brother's name is Judah. Judah thinks he'll get the blessing from the father. He doesn't, so he runs to the Canaanites. And he lives with the Canaanite people, and he takes a Canaanite wife, and he has Canaanite children, and he raises them as Canaanites, and they marry Canaanite women. They don't worship the one true God. And the first son marries this woman, and Scripture says he's so evil that he dies. The next son marries that woman, fulfilling the Leverite vow, but he refuses to give her a child because it'll go to her brother, a man who refuses the Leverite vow, and he's put to death. And then there's a third boy, but Judah says, I'm not giving you to Tamar, because every guy that comes with Tamar ends up dying. They're not dying because of Tamar, they're dying because they're evil and wicked. And Judah refuses to give his son to fulfill the Leverite vow. So Tamar dresses as a prostitute. This is Genesis 38, if you want to look at it later. And tricks Judah into sleeping with her. And she has a son by Judah, twins. One of them's name is Perez. And this boy Judah, I'll show it to you another time, we see him redeemed. Redeemed to the point that the Messiah will come through Judah. He's not called the Lion of Joseph. No, he's the Lion of Judah coming through this wicked boy who gets redeemed. And here in Israel, they're recounting, they're saying, oh, we remember Tamar who had to trick Judah into fulfilling the Leverite vow. It was a shameful thing. He wouldn't do it. But when he realized that, he changed. That's where we see him begin to be transformed. In verse 13, we see Boaz... It says that the Lord gave conception to Ruth. Ruth had been married to Malon for some time and they never had a child. So the Lord is the one who opens and closes the womb. I'll tell you, I know in a congregation this size that there are those who have struggled with having children. There are those here today who want children who don't have them. And I tell you, I, I see, I know the pain and the difficulty of that. Know that the Lord loves you, that He's sufficient that he'll be present with you. I don't know how the Lord plans to build your family, but I tell you, I have no other advice for you than to stick close to Jesus. Stick close to him. He cares. He loves. Cling to the people of God. God loves you. And just sometimes because someone doesn't have a children doesn't mean at all that God doesn't love them. God loves them. And God has a plan and a purpose. I can't always tell you what that is, but I know he's with you and he's present. And here in this story... Ruth now has a child. And that child is credited back to Malon. And that child, when that child is born, everybody praises Naomi. Oh, Naomi's been blessed. And they say, Naomi, Ruth is better than seven sons because she's taken care of you and she's been faithful to you and she's given you another son. And they lay this son in Naomi's lap and all the women of the city name him. They say, a son has been born to Naomi, and they name him Obed, which means servant. He's come to serve and take care of you, Naomi. In your old age, this little baby boy will take care of you, and she helps raise him. Now, at the end of the book of Ruth, we get into some genealogy. And if we're careful, we look at genealogies as just like text we just fly through and we don't pay any attention to. 
If you're a Jewish person, genealogies are vastly important. In fact, the book of Matthew opens with a genealogy, and in the book of Matthew, it mentions five women in the genealogy. And let me tell you this, in genealogies in the ancient world, you would typically not mention women. It's just the way it was. Matthew's gospel mentions five. The first one is a woman who dressed as a prostitute named Tamar. The second one was a woman named Rahab who lived in a Canaanite city as a Canaanite and her, literally, she's known as Rahab the prostitute. The third is Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess. And the fourth woman mentioned in Jesus' lineage, they don't even say her name. They just call her Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then Mary is the fifth. And every one of those women had scandal. Mary had scandal. People were like, how, how'd she have this baby? We don't believe her story. Every one of these women, they didn't come from another nation. They had sexual sin. And what we see is that God redeems all that. In the lineage of His own Son, He takes these broken stories and puts them together for His glory. Why would Boaz redeem Ruth? Do you know who Boaz's mama was? Boaz had a mom named Rahab, a Canaanite woman known as Rahab the prostitute. And Rahab trusted in the one true God. And everybody in the city of Jericho died except the one who trusted in the one true God and hung the red cord of faith out the window trusting in the blood of the Lamb. She was saved and she had a boy named Boaz. And when that boy looked, and he saw a young Moabite widowed woman, and she says, will you redeem me? Boaz goes, of course. I'll redeem you. Somebody did that for my mom. I wouldn't be here today if someone didn't care for the poor, the helpless, the alien, those in need. Boaz can relate. He's the Redeemer. And brother and sister, our Redeemer can relate. He knows where you are. Some of you have come in here today and you're carrying a whole bunch of weight. You're hurting. You're confused. You, don't, you wonder, is God really present? You tell me He's with me. Is He really here? He's present. He cares and He loves you. And I pray that as we journey through the book of Ruth, we've seen this small picture of our Bible pointing us forward to a Redeemer, a Redeemer named Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. He's enough. There are people here today who are wishing situations in their life were different. Some wishing they had children. Some wishing they were married. Some wishing they had, uh, had a different job. Some wishing they lived somewhere else. And let me tell you, Jesus knows and He's with you. And He is enough. Cling to Him. God may change your situation. He may not. I don't know. And I don't know when He's going to do that. I'm not the fourth person of the Trinity. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you He's with you. I can tell you He's sufficient. I can tell you He's enough. And I tell you, cling to Him. Keep trusting in Him. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is good. So church, may we cling to our Savior, Jesus. Pray that you've been blessed by the book of Ruth. Short little book. 
But boy, does God pack a lot into a little space. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you that your word is true. It's not true because I say it's true. It's true because it's how you chose to spoke, to speak to us. You took 40 authors over a few thousand years on different continents, and you spoke perfectly your word through these men and these women, and you gave it to us, and that's how you've spoken to us. We thank you for Ruth. We thank you that there's a Redeemer. We thank you for that Redeemer Boaz, who would be the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that woman Ruth, who'd be the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray if there's any here today, maybe they don't know the Redeemer. Maybe they don't know that the Redeemer has paid the price for them. Lord, just like Boaz, the price was paid while we weren't present. We just get to trust it. I pray that they would trust in the good news today. And Lord, for those here in this church, there are many hurting, many struggling, some rejoicing. I pray that we do that all knowing that you are God and you are over all this and you are sufficient. There is no sorrow that you do not come and address. There's no joy, true joy, that you do not give. So we thank you for all this. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.